Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Welcome again to Crosspoint. Glad you're here. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that afterwards. Um, and today, we're going to jump right into it. We are wrapping up our series on First Peter that we've worked on for the last number of weeks. And um, we're not going to go all the way through the end of chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. You might be like, wait, are we skipping parts of that? I would encourage you, we, we actually started with the last few verses in First uh, Peter. So if you're like, hey, I want to hear about that, excellent for you. All the messages are recorded and they're on the website. So you can go back and you can listen to that, which is awesome. Um, but today we're going to end uh, our series with verses 1 through 11. And this has been quite the trip over the last few weeks as we've walked through this. Peter has hit on some pretty intense things. Um, there's been a lot of talk about suffering and how do we endure that. There's been a lot of talk of like, okay, we don't fit into this world and how it functions, so like, how are we supposed to reconcile that? Uh, he's talked to us about our purpose and our calling to be priests in God's kingdom, that, that our job, every Christian's job, not just a few select and not just in a certain special place, but every follower of Jesus' job is to bring God to people and people to God, and that's, that's our whole purpose, and how God is the one that empowers us to do that, the Spirit empowers us to do that. And, there's, and he's hit on some really hard things like how to submit to each other and how to live alongside each other. And it's all been really, really good and all really, really helpful and all very challenging for sure. And uh, today, in this passage of scripture, he wraps it up with what I believe to be like a very, very powerful, like if you could really aggressively like write an exclamation point, I feel like that's what this is. Like he aggressively is writing an exclamation point so that we are on the same page with him as, as uh, we move forward uh, in, this, in this letter. And so there's a lot going on in this passage, though, and so I'll just warn you about that. Uh, and so what I want to do is first I want to read it all in one shot, and then we're going to go back and we're going to kind of see how it sections out a little bit, all right? And I think we need the big picture so that we can understand the details. So if you want to follow along with me, great. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'm just going to read it. All in one go here. So I, ex I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little bit, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so much, right? <laughs> so much in there. So a lot that we got to work through. And at first glance, at least this was, this was uh, my experience, at first glance, it feels like Peter is kind of doing this like rapid fire of a bunch of random, helpful for sure, but seemingly disconnected ideas. As we read through that, at least it was, this was true in my mind, there's like this bit about leading well and about following well. There's this bit about casting our cares and our worries and our anxieties on him. Uh, there's the bit about the enemy prowling around like a lion. There's a bit about suffering. And then right in the middle of all of that, there's this reference to humility. And uh, all of those at first glance kind of seem to be all separate. And I think, I genuinely, I, I started to think through this to make sure this is a true statement. I really do believe that I've heard people, professors, preachers, whoever, talk and preach on every single one of these sections, but never together. I think I've heard messages on every single chunk of this passage of scripture, but never completely together. When I was in Bible college, when I was learning how to be a pastor, which seems like a joke, but when I was learning uh, in that context, those first few verses about how to lead and shepherd a flock, they were like, oh, these are perfect verses for us to talk to people who are learning to go into ministry about. Uh, the, the verses about casting our anxiety on God, it's like, I've seen that on Instagram about a billion different times. And above people's bathrooms, you know, like, like that's a great verse for that kind of context. Uh, the, the bit about the enemy prowling around like a lion, I'm pretty sure that that was like inspiration for most of like the 90s Christian pop ballads. Like I'm pretty sure Car most of Carmen's songs were inspired by this one, this one passage of scripture. And, and if you don't know who Carmen is, which I'm getting the vibe that you don't, you need to go, you need to go watch him. It's not good, but it's a cultural experience that I think you do need to, uh, need to have here. That guy was something else. The verses about suffering, those always popped up whenever like a missions pastor was in town. And they're like, hey, we want to let you know about the suffering that's happening all around the world that you have no category for whatsoever, but we want you to hear about it. And of course, even in the middle, uh, I've heard messages on humility. But it's never been in one continuous chunk. And I'm not positive that that's 100% necessarily evil or wrong. But like we talk about here all the time, when we read scripture in context, it is really helpful to us to be able to interpret it accurately, and it paints a much bigger and much more beautiful picture. And I totally believe that, that is certainly true today of this passage of scripture. These are not separated ideas. That in fact, there is a very clear thread that runs through all of this. So I believe this passage isn't a bunch of rapid-fire tips. It's not like Peter ran, realized, oh, I'm almost done with my letter. I better cram all these in in the last few verses. But instead, all of these things are connected with humility in the middle. And I would say humility like the very literal heart of this passage. Humility which pumps the blood out to all of these other issues that Peter addressed in this passage of Scripture. I think the whole thing is about the pursuit of humility and the results of a lifestyle of humility, which really should not be a big surprise to us. Shouldn't be a big surprise to us in this letter. He has made a point to talk about humility more than once in this letter. And when we think of Peter, it's probably definitively the most compelling transformation in Peter's life was his journey of humility. 
He is not just like pontificating here. It's not like an academic exercise for him to talk about humility. Peter is like the nitty-gritty like case study for what happens in a person's life when humility invades and is accepted. And what we find here is, and what we find through Peter's life is it radically transforms how he does things, how he sees people, and how he lives his life. And we get this beautiful gift in Scripture of seeing so much of Peter's life uh, in the Bible. Like from from the Gospels where we first see Jesus call him all through the book of Acts, all the way to what we read here in his letters. And I don't know about you guys, but I constantly forget that it's Peter who's writing this. Because this doesn't seem like the Peter that so often we read about in the Gospels, right? It's a very different guy. The Peter in the Gospels is brash, and he's full of himself, and he kind of has his own agenda. And then we pop over to 1st and 2nd Peter, and it's like a different person is writing this. And I would argue that pretty, pretty much the only reason is because of his willingness to embrace the journey of humility that God took him on. And it sure seems like it's one that Peter wants, to, wants us to see, the people who are reading his letters, for us to see and embrace as well. But what do we mean when we say humility? Because I do think that's an important thing we got we to gotta nail down. We, we know it's necessary. We know it's important. It's all over the pages of the Bible. We talk about it here at our church a lot. But I always feel this tension, and maybe, maybe this is not an issue for you, but maybe you feel this as well, that you line up 10 really smart people and ask them, hey, could you like define biblical humility for me? You'd have like 10 slightly different answers. Um, there'd be a lot of overlap to be sure, but, it, but people would have their own kind of take on what humility is, and conveniently, they'd also leave out the parts that rub them the wrong way about humility, right? We're all guilty of doing that kind of thing. Um, but what that can do is, is sometimes it can make it difficult for us to understand what is it that we're going after. We know humility is important. If you've been to this church over the last 10 years, you've been hearing a lot about it, but what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Now, Those 10 people that you would line up are objectively all smarter than me, but here's what I've ended up kind of landing on. Um, As we've spent time on this, God keeps drawing my mind back to this working definition of what humility is. This isn't an exhaustive one. I'm sure there's pieces missing, but I find it has been very helpful for me, and I believe it is accurate to Scripture. And the definition that I'm working off of is this. Humility is seeing things clearly. When you boil it all down, humility is seeing things for what they are, mostly seeing ourselves for who we are, but also seeing God for who he is. Humility gives me the ability to look at myself, good, bad, and ugly, and embrace all of it as true. Humility allows me to look at myself and say, I am created, Kyle is created in the image of God to look, there's, there's some aspects of who I am that are similar to God, and the more I align myself with him, the more that is true. Humility allows me to look at myself and say, I am deeply, deeply loved by God, regardless of how I feel about him, regardless of my obedience to him. But humility also allows me to look at myself and see how fractured I am. It allows me to look at myself and recognize where I am in rebellion against God. That I need saving, and there's only one way for that to happen. It's through my faith and trust in Jesus, who is the only one who has the authority to offer that save. That through that trust in Jesus, I'm brought into his family 
as a son, even when sometimes I try to live life my own way from time to time. Humility also helps us see God clearly, that his ways are wholly different than my ways, that his thoughts are better than my thoughts, that he is absolutely true to who he says he is, that he cares for me, and at the end of the day, he can be trusted even if I don't always understand what he's doing. And so what that does is when we approach our relationship with God in humility, what that says is that I can see myself clearly and I can see God clearly. So when my thoughts are not lined up with his thoughts, what set of thoughts are going to go? Mine, right? I can see myself clearly enough to know that when my thoughts come into uh, conflict with God's thoughts, mine are the ones that need to change, not his, because he can be trusted. And as Peter closes out this letter to these Christians, it seems like he is calling them to gain some clarity. He's calling them to see some important things clearly because the stakes are just too high for we as followers of of Jesus to be walking around with cloudy vision or completely blinded. And I think that the Holy Spirit says the same thing to us here today, that if humility is the heart of this passage, which pumps out the blood of clarity to all these different aspects of our life, uh, that's, that's what's going to happen in these next few verses. There are things that each and every one of us experience, go through, have some kind of tie to, that need the blood that pumps from the heart of humility to be able to see clearly. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So let's look, so let's go through it again, kind of section by section, and realize through the lens of humility what Peter is trying to say here. So let's go back to verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll start reading right there. It says, So I, exo- I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. When he says elders, he's talking most likely about like leaders in the church, uh, usually people who are a little bit older, maybe have been uh, in relationship with Jesus a little bit longer. They were leading the church, directing the church. And probably the simplest way to describe the elders is they were people with a fair amount of spiritual influence over others. And here's what he tells them to do in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. He says, don't drag your feet. This is not a drudgery. This is a joy. This is not just a duty. He says, but do it willingly as God would have you, because God called you to it. Not for shameful gain, any kind of power or money or popularity or whatever it is that the earth offers us that makes us feel fulfilled. He says, don't do it for that, but eagerly with passion, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory or unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." So here Peter brings up yet another relationship that has a, a distinct power dynamic at play. And he, he goes right to this idea of like a mutual submission yet again. He did this with citizens and governments a little while back. He did this with slaves and masters. He did this with husbands and wives. And he does it here again, that those with influence and those without, they are not in opposition with each other, but especially in the church, We are to take care of each other and use whatever influence we have and whatever authority we have well from a heart of humility. 
Here's the reality, whether you would count yourself as an elder or not, or whether you should or not, every person in this room has some level of influence. Every single one of us has some kind of influence, even if you don't think so, even if you don't want it. (laughs) Every single one of us does, whether you have kids or employees or friends or neighbors or people who look up to you in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us has some level of influence, and every single person in this room is still accountable to somebody else. Some people have been given more, some people have been given less, but one thing that humility does is that it helps us see that regardless of how much influence we have or don't have, it has been given to us by God, not something we've earned. You could say it like this, humility, if humility is seeing things clearly, humility allows us also to see our relationships clearly. How often do we think about the influence that we have as being a gift given to us from God? I don't think about that all the time. Very often, whatever level of influence I have, if I'm being really honest with myself, I'm like, I earned that influence. I did the right thing. I had the right conversations. I, I was willing to go past what was comfortable for me to be able to speak into someone's life. I have earned this level of influence. And as soon as we start to do that, we're going to start using it poorly. How often do we think about influence being a gift given to us from God, one that we need to hold gently, one that we need to take great care with, not abusing it, not ignoring it, but using it really well, knowing that God is the one who gave it to us. Whatever influence we've been given, which we haven't earned, whatever we've been given, we can't use it just for ourselves or to twist arms or to get people to think the same way we think or to do the things we want them to do, but instead we need to lead by example, not for gain of power or things but just to make sure that we are being obedient to our great shepherd, the one who's in charge of us, our ultimate authority, Jesus. Do our relationships look like this? Whatever influence we have, does it look like that? Whether you have a lot or a little, whether you've been on this road of following Jesus for a long, long time, or whether you just started, are you carrying your influence well? Are we seeing our relationships clearly? The truth is there are times for us to lead the way and there are times for us to shut up and listen. And humility helps us see clearly when to step into those roles. Let's be real. Over the last two years, we've seen a lot of influence used really poorly, right? Yeah, we've done it. Every person in this room's probably done it to some capacity. And I can't help but think maybe a big part of that is because we were kind of arrogant with our influence felt like we earned it or we should be able to use it how we wanted to. Humility helps us see that our relationships and the influence that exists inside of them, those need to be given to God and we need to carry them very gently. We're actually going to skip the next part of the passage. I know it's going to seem counterintuitive because it's the actual part that talks about humility, but we're going to come back to it because we're going to do a little heart surgery and like remove it. We're going to bring it back in at the end to wrap it all together. Okay, so don't freak out but we're going to skip that, those ne- that next part of that verse, and we're going to jump right to verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If humility is all about seeing things clearly, 
Humility helps us see our relationships clearly, and humility also allows us to see our situation clearly. How often do we read about Peter's story in the Gospels where he responded in fear? A ton. He was a worried guy. Now, it's not, it's not what you think. It's not like Peter, like, wringing his wrists worried, but so often his response to Jesus and to people was anger because he was worried. When Jesus came to him and said, hey, I just want you to know this whole thing is leading to me dying, he's like, no way, Jesus, don't you dare, and he yells at him, right? That was a response, an anger response out of fear. When they came to get Jesus in the garden, fear drove him to take out a sword and cut off a person's ear. When Jesus was being tortured, fear drove him to deny Jesus three times to a bunch of different people. Fear had, anxiety had a tight grip on Peter's life. But as he became more humble, what do we see as as we see him progress through the book of Acts? That guy wasn't afraid of anything. He rolled with the punches no matter what happened because he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. I love the language here. It's aggressive language. The idea of casting, taking, and kind of almost aggressively throwing our worries and our anxieties and the situation that we find ourselves in at the feet of Jesus. It, it, It conjures up this mental picture in my mind of like, okay, something happens that makes me worried or anxious. It's like I grab it as aggressively as I can, and I'm like, Jesus, take it. I throw it right at his feet. Because he cares for us, he says, do that. I can handle that. That doesn't mess me up. Because he cares for us. We talked about this on Wednesday night with the students, what a unique thing it is for God to say, I care about what you're going through. It was interesting as I was spending some time working through this, uh, the ancient world that Peter was writing to, the idea of a God was not something that was a struggle for them to wrap their heads around. They thought it was kind of weird that, that Christians would only worship one God. But some, and they could even wrap their heads around the idea that like a God might be good but they could never conceive of a God that actually cared about what they were going through. That's something that separates the one true God, our God, from any other faith in the world. But I think the thing that keeps us from grabbing our worries, our situations, our circumstances, and throwing them at the feet of Jesus is our own arrogance. I think we only can do that when we are willing to humble ourselves Because I don't know about you, but nine times out of 10, I try to take all my worries and anxieties and stuff them as deep inside of me as I can possibly go so that no one else sees them. Is anybody else tracking with me on that? There may be a couple of you guys. That is always my go-to, is to hide them, stuff them down so that no one has to look at them, especially God, even though that's so dumb because he already knows, right? When we embrace a lifestyle of humility, we recognize we need help. We can't do this on our own. And so we take whatever anxiety exists in the world around us because of sin and brokenness and sometimes actually following through with what Jesus tells us to do. The anxiety that comes in from that, we take it, we lay it at Jesus' feet. Not lay it, we throw it at Jesus' feet because he cares for us. That's what Peter says to do. Humble ourselves and cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He continues in verse eight to say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Humility allows us to see our situation clearly, our relationships clearly. It also allows us to see our enemy clearly. I feel like so often we tend to either give the devil way too much credit or we completely ignore him. And Peter seems to be saying, through the lens of humility, just to see him for who he is. Just to see him clearly for who he is. An adversary, like a lion, with teeth in its mouth, but one that can be resisted and is actively being resisted by people all over the globe. See, I think, I think this is true. I, I had someone disagree with me about this earlier today, and I think that's okay, because we have to be able to have some disagreement and talk through this stuff. But the more that I have spent time in God's word and the more I have experienced in life trying to be obedient to God, I actually feel like the devil is not that creative of a being. Um, I think his playbook is pretty slim. Because uh, pretty much since day one, his whole deal has just been trying to convince us to believe that we know best. If you go back to the very beginning of the story, what did he do to Eve? He convinced her that she knows best. And I think of my life and every single time where the enemy has got a foothold in my life, it's because he's convinced me that I know best. I can handle it. Now he prettys it up, throws a new coat of spray paint on it or whatever, but at the core, that's, that's been his trick since day one. That's been his lie since day one. He's kind of a one-trick pony in that way. And what, he, and what Peter seems to be saying to us is he wants us to recognize like, hey, the devil is there and he is formidable, but you also can pretty much count on what he's going to do. So don't be overwhelmed by him. Resist him because he can't take you down. He's doing the same kinds of nonsense to people all over the world, and in a practical sense, much worse for a lot of the rest of the people in this world. So stand firm and stand firm together against him because he can't do anything to you. When I was thinking about this, my mind jumped to an experience I had when I was a, a little kid, and it's like, it's kind of a foggy memory, I won't lie. I don't know if there's like some trauma attached to it or something, but I have a hard time like remembering exactly what went down here, but... I was on a vacation with my family. We were in South Dakota, which is just like um, tourist trap after tourist trap, basically through the whole state, right? And so we went to one of many said tourist traps, and it was like a Christmas town of some kind, like the North Pole in South Dakota or something like that. And so there was like Christmas stuff all year round. We went there not at Christmas, but there was Christmas stuff all year round. And, and uh, we go in, and you know, there's trees, and there's candy canes, all the, all the deal. And then for some reason, there was also like a fairy tale land like included in it for some reason, and like a, a walkthrough of like a storybook that you could do. And the storybook was the, the Billy Goat's Gruff. You know, that, you know that old story where the goats try to cross the bridge, and a troll comes up, and he's like, you can't cross the bridge, I'll eat you, and they keep throwing each other under the bus. It's not a very good moral for a story, but... Uh, that was, that was the, the walkthrough. And I remember walking through there with my grandfather, who's this really skinny guy who's really, really tall. And we're walking through this thing. It's kind of an immersive, immersive experience. <laughs> and we're walking over this bridge, and, I, and it has one of those, like, uh, foot pedal things where you step on it, and, and this troll would, like, jump up out from under this bridge, this, like, little, like, plastic troll thing. And I was a little kid. I don't remember how, how old I was probably wouldn't like to tell you because it might be embarrassing, but it scared me so much. I, I jumped and I ran in between my grandfather's legs and all the way out to the front gate of the, the Christmas land or whatever. 
And it took them a long time to find me and, you know, went on the intercom. It's like, oh, there's a child at the front gate. Someone needs to come get him. And finally, he comes up to me and he grabs me and, uh, and he starts talking to me. And I was like, that was so scary. I was so afraid. And he told me two things. He said, we're going to go back and we're going to go through this because you can't just run away of what's scared of you. But you remember two things. The first is he's going to jump up at the exact same place that he did last time so you can be ready for it. And the second thing he told me was, and he can't touch you. This whole thing isn't designed for this to touch you. It's just to pop up and scare you. And as we went through it, sure enough, I step on the thing. He pops up exactly where I expected him to pop up, and he couldn't touch me. Now, it still scared me for a moment. But the thing that I keep being drawn to as I think about our enemy is I think that the same is true of when we're able to see him clearly is that nine times out of 10, the enemy is gonna pop up to do his thing exactly where you expect him to. I really do believe that. Because how often are the same sins the one that keep drawing us back to them? How often are the same stressors exactly where we start to lose our cool or we start to take our eyes off Jesus or we start to believe that we know best? He's not that, he's not that tricky. He pops up exactly where you expect him to, but one thing we can have confidence in is that if we have the spirit living in us, he can't touch us. He can't do anything to us. The problem comes when we don't do what Peter told us to do, which is be sober-minded and to be on the lookout for him. I think about it in another way. Um, when I think about not maintaining my focus or being watchful on something that can really cause a problem for me, and I think about driving here in Modesto. Uh, I drive from my house to the church and back like multiple times a day. Um, I always take Tully. It's pretty much the same route every single time. I could probably drive that drive with my eyes closed. That would be really a dangerous thing to do. So obviously I'm not gonna do that, but I, but I think I probably could because I've done that so many times. I'm very confident that I can make it back and forth a bunch of times. But you drop me in San Francisco like I was this past weekend at like five o'clock <laughs> to drive around San Francisco, I am way more attentive to what's going on there, right? I am way more focused on what's happening around me than I ever am driving back and forth here. I'm not afraid of the traffic in San Francisco, but I need to be aware of what's going on around me. Now, is it possible for me to get in an accident and I'm not trying to be morbid here, but is it possible for me to be, have an accident in San Francisco and die? Yes. Is it also possible for me, even though I've driven this road 100,000 times, to get in an accident in Modesto and die? Yes. In fact, I would argue maybe more likely here because I'm not paying attention. My focus isn't, isn't like lasered in like it is in a different scenario. And so I think what Peter is trying to help us understand is like we don't have to be afraid of what the enemy's doing because the story is already written on that. But we need to pay attention about where he's at work so that we don't start to believe that we know best. We need to have that focus and that sober-mindedness that he talks about. Last thing he mentions here in verse 10 is, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If humility allows us to see all these things clearly, I think the last thing he draws our attention to is humility allows us to see the big picture clearly as well. A humble heart allows us to recalibrate and say, hey, what I'm experiencing right now, it's temporary. Good or bad, it's for a moment. 
And in the end, God will restore and strengthen and establish me. That this little kingdom that I'm creating for myself is temporary, probably not even that great, and that my mind and attention needs to stay fixed on the big picture where Jesus is the king of the kingdom that we're building, not me. I'm so convinced that so many of our problems come from a lack of perspective. So many of our problems come from having short-sightedness or tunnel vision, that if only we could broaden our perspective and see the big picture clearly, we would be able to follow Jesus with such less burden. I think about uh, this idea of tunnel vision that is so easy to fall into, and I had this experience just a month ago that, that highlighted it so clearly for me. Uh, my daughter, Abby, is, is in fifth grade, and she ran for student council at her elementary school, all right? And you would have thought that we were genuinely electing a president. The amount of time and effort and money that was put into this fifth grade student council election. And it's great, I'm glad that she did it. Uh, she made it on a student council, by the way, she's a publicist. But uh, I, was, I was absolutely appalled with how much was going into this. They had to get 30 signatures to even run. They had to make posters. Megan got super swept up into it. She, she like made this giant like 3D like popcorn poster thing. Uh, they had to give speeches in front of their entire school. Ab, uh, Megan and I, we went and we watched it. And genuinely, there was a few kids, you know, who got up and did like a normal speech thing. There was a couple kids who were taking it so seriously. This kid literally did like a song and dance out onto the stage. It was like, da -da -da -da. hey, I'm so-and-so, and you should vote for me for student council. I was like, what is happening right now? This kid barely knows how to tie his shoes. What are we doing here? This girl genuinely quoted Amelia Earhart in her reasoning why you should vote for me for student council that lasts one semester at elementary school. How crazy, right? How crazy, how short-sighted, what tunnel vision. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's all bad for kids, that's fine, but we've seen how that has shifted and manipulated and grown as a person grows, right? Maybe it's student council in fifth grade, maybe it's a sport in middle school, maybe it's a college in high school, maybe it's a job in college, maybe it's a retirement later on in life, maybe it's a relationship, a certain amount of money in the bank account, a certain level of comfort that we've grown used to. And it's easy to laugh at a fifth grade student council tunnel vision, but we also gotta look honestly at ourselves and ask, where do I have tunnel vision? Where am I short-sighted in the mission that God has given us? Do I spend all my time and effort on things that are temporary, things that will go away? Or do I have my eyes fixed on the big picture? See, I don't think we can do it without first embracing a heart of humility. Peter has taken this time to call for clarity in all of these areas of life that every Jesus follower experiences in some way, shape, or form, and things that he has experienced. Peter can say these pretty radical statements because he learned these lessons. They were pretty hard-earned lessons most of the time for him, um, and they all trace back to the exact same place, the heart of the passage, the end of verse 5, which says this, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This was Peter's lifelong lesson, and it's the one that changed him the most. See, we might not like this, but we're getting humbled one way or the other. It's happening. 
Peter quotes Proverbs 3, and it says that, that God opposes the proud. And I don't care how talented or smart or resourced or strong we are, you are not coming out on top of that scuffle between you and God if he opposes you, if he is actively against you because of your pride. Peter knew this from experience. He was humbled probably more times than he chose humility, at least at the beginning. And he urges these Jesus followers to humble themselves first, to put on the clothes of humility. The language here of clothing ourselves is the same described uh, to putting on a servant's apron. It's like the same word. And I don't think Peter used that kind of language on accident. Every idea in this passage of scripture you can trace back to a number of moments in Peter's life, but this one had to hit the hardest. Like surely Peter is meant to draw our attention back to another one who in humility wrapped himself in the servant's towel to wash the feet of those who would abandon and betray him in just a few short hours. Jesus giving this practical picture, this precursor to the ultimate act of humility of being obedient to death, scripture says, even death on a cross. He knelt down, he wrapped himself in a towel, he chose literally to be humiliated and would go on to prove that in even a greater fashion through his death on the cross. Now between there, he let his disciples know exactly what was going to happen. They had no idea how to, how to actually get on board with that, but they had this picture of Jesus humbling himself to wash their feet. And then later on that night, he, he told them exactly how he would humble himself in the ultimate fashion, the one that would bring every single person who puts their faith in Jesus into relationship with him. And that's something we want to remember here this morning. And so if you have one of these, awesome. If you, if you need one, there's some in the back. Go ahead and grab it. But Jesus, after he literally humiliated himself in front of his disciples. He took this bread as they were eating together and he passed it around and he broke it and he said, like this bread was just broken, my body is gonna be broken for you. My, I, I will be humiliated on your behalf so that you can be made right and so that you could have relationship with my father. So every single time that you eat this, you remember the model that I have set before you of humility and the sacrifice that I have made on your behalf. Let's eat the bread together. Then he passed around a cup. He said, you see how this wine pours out of this cup? My blood will be poured out before too long. And just like my body will be broken, my blood will be poured out as a ransom for many so that through my blood you can be made clean, you can be made right, and you can have real relationship with my Father. So every time you drink this, you remember, again, the model of humility that I have given you to follow after. Let's drink the cup together. As we wrap up here, I just got one more thing I want to share. You know, if you've been a part of our church family for a while, some of this is going to sound pretty familiar because we've been on this road of humility for like 10 years now. And there's been times where we've chosen to humble ourselves, and there's been times where God has humbled us because we were a little slow to get with the program. And over the last few years, it feels like what 
the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of the people in this church. And I don't know, you might not be like on board just yet, but there's a lot of people I think who are part of this church family who are experiencing like the life that Jesus actually promises us. And I cannot help but come back to this point. We're able right now to see what God is doing clearly. And I'm convinced for me anyway, you can decide this for you. I'm convinced for me that if I hadn't spent 10 years learning how to pursue humility, I don't think I'd be able to see the moment we're in right now very clearly. I really don't. I'd look at all these other things to make me think that God's not at work or that we're failing in some way or whatever. But this, this commitment to humility, this, this heart that God has put in our church that pumps the blood out to all the things that we do, it makes me so excited for the moment we're in right now and what God is going to continue to lead us into. But I'm so sure of this. Humility is where this thing started. Humility is where it's going to end. And humility is the only thing that's going to sustain us right here and now. That every day we make the conscious choice. No one wakes up and is like, hey, I was humble for the past 20 years. Oops. It's not happening. It's a constant choice to, like Peter says, put on these clothes of humility, to tie the servant's apron around ourselves, to pick up the servant's towel. That's what's going to keep us tender to the Spirit. It's what's going to keep us having clear vision for what God wants for us. It's what's gonna make us mature as a church and as individuals. As we've talked about this idea of of the priesthood, um, people who are called to partner with God in his kingdom, to bring people to God and God to people. When I think of priests, my mind always jumps to like the Catholic church, which is where I see it, you know? Like the collar and the, the sashes and the fancy robes. But I don't think that's the picture that we need to embrace of our church, of what it looks like to be a priest. Man, when we get ready to suit up and go out to fulfill our priestly duties, this is the uniform, humility. To pick up that servant's apron, to tie it around ourselves, and to get to work, to show people who God really is in the life that he really wants for them. So we're going to have a moment to respond. We're going to sing one more song together. I'd encourage you to stand up if you want to during this time. And I'll just encourage you to, even if it's in a physical way or, or just from your heart, just like make that conscious choice right now. Say, God, I'm choosing to clothe myself in humility. I'm choosing to see myself clearly, and I'm choosing to see you clearly and God, whatever you tell me to do, if, if I have a, a, a thought or a moment that comes into conflict with that, I will let it go because I trust who you are, what you say, and I trust that what you want me to do is worth it for your kingdom, for the big picture that you're painting in this world. So I encourage you to respond in some way um, during this time. Would you pray with me? And we'll have a chance to respond together. Jesus, thank you so much. Thanks for modeling this incredibly difficult path that you've laid out for us. I'm really grateful that you didn't say, hey, put on the clothes with humility, but I'll never show you how. Man, you, you showed us so clearly in a way that probably none of us will ever have to do. But God, I pray that the situations we find ourselves in, the, 
the moments, the difficulties, the joys, all of it, God, that when we wake up in the morning, we're ready to put on the clothes of humility so that we can see ourselves, our relationships, our purpose, everything as clear as we've ever seen it. So do that work in us, God. We're open, we're willing, and we want you to. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.